0: Welcome to the TechLink Health Podcast, an on-demand source for the top trending healthcare topics and insights, delivered by key opinion and emerging leaders, and as featured on the TechLink Health app. The healthcare industry is rapidly evolving, so our goal is to connect listeners to the most relevant insights, ranging from digital health to financial well-being to interesting side gigs. For more details, visit www.techlink.health. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to the TechLink Health Podcast. I am Justine Reese, and today's episode is a continuation of our TechLink Wealth Series and focuses on the importance of social impact investing with a particular spotlight on the economics of health and happiness. This episode's guest is Prantik Mazumdar, an entrepreneur and venture investor who acts as a digital transformation catalyst in organizations to drive sustainable change and impact. Previously, Prontik has been a part of successful venture exits within the digital marketing domain, and he is currently serving as the managing director of the CXM Group at Dentsu Singapore. He is a regular columnist for Marketing Magazine, Campaign Asia, Economic Times, Business Times on all things digital transformation. In 2015, he was recognized as one of the top 50 most influential marketers in the world. Apart from his corporate role, he is an active angel and venture investor, mentor, advisor, and speaker to various organizations, as well as an entrepreneur in residence. He holds a Bachelor of Computer Engineering and Technopreneurship from the National University of Singapore. Is that a major or a minor?
1: Yeah, it's it's actually a minor. So my major was in computer engineering. And just when I was in year three, finding my feet, I realized a couple of things. I realized that, you know, I have a lot of passion for technology, but I'm not really good at coding and developing it. And that's when tech entrepreneurship came in as a minor. Thank God for that. So this is the Singapore government's way of exposing young students to the idea of entrepreneurship in the domain of a technology. And that's why the term tech entrepreneurship comes together, technopreneurship.
0: So cool. I love it. I think that's really cool. It goes without saying that Prantik has a unique lens into the world of social impact investing, and we really look forward to getting his perspective. So without further delay, we are really excited to have you, Prantik, to the podcast. So thank you for joining us today. Uh, And to start off, can you tell us in your own words about your journey into this technopreneurship within healthcare and social impact investing?
1: Absolutely. Thank you. Hello, everyone Very good morning from my side. I'm in Singapore. It's early in the morning here. Uh, Well, in terms of if you need to understand me, I guess there are three or four keywords. I'll probably start with that and then I can kind of deep dive. So one is Southeast Asia. That's the geographical location where I've been for the last 20, 25 years. Area of interest include sport, technology, digital marketing, public policy. So those are three, four areas or three, four thought bubbles, if you will you know, areas of interest for me in my life, and well, engine investing, social enterprise investing, uh, and startup growth, that's the domain, you know, that I've built my kind of career in. So those are, I suppose, three big headline buckets to relate to me or to think about myself. And my journey, uh, I'm an Indian, originally from the eastern part of India, but I grew up in the west. Then my family moved to Indonesia, another emerging market country, passive country, very beautiful Hospitable people. And so I did my high schooling from Indonesia before moving to Singapore in 2001 to join the National University of Singapore. And it's been 20 years that I've been within Asia. Again, Asia is a massive, massive geographical landmark. So typically, people tend to know China, India, Australia, New Zealand, these three big blocks. But bulk of my education and career has been in this little block called Southeast Asia, uh, which is about 10 countries, total population size of about 600 million. So about twice uh, the population size of America, and it's very diverse. So I think one thing about Asia is there is no homogeneity, mostly. It's each country has their own language, dialects, cultural references, etc. At this juncture, I dare say it is one of the booming startup capitals uh, in the world. So just like you have a lot of new growth happening in LATAM, in Africa, Southeast Asia probably is maybe five years ahead of those geographical blocks. There's a lot of innovation happening in e-commerce, quick commerce, fintech, logistics techs, etc the business that I started which is called Happy Marketer. So Happy Marketer is a data-driven digital marketing company. We sold that to an American brand called Mercury, based out of Baltimore which is part of a Japanese conglomerate called Denso. So I've sold that business. I'm at the fag end of my journey with them. In parallel, I spent a lot of time with founders and entrepreneurs as an investor and an advisor. So as you see, my life is spread across APAC, I started my career with the government, worked for two small media businesses before starting up on my own and then uh, selling it to a large conglomerate. So, the common thread is Southeast Asia, data driven marketing, startups, and investing. So, over the last 20 years, I've done different things in different markets, but what's the common string that kind of connects everything is those three elements. So, hopefully, that gives you a bit of clarity and a bit of perspective on my life, my journey.
0: Yeah. Definitely. And based on your background, it's quite apparent that many of your efforts have been geared toward driving societal change through technopreneurial endeavors. So what is your point of view on the economics of health and happiness and entrepreneurship? And how does this factor into your work in the social impact investing space? Yeah, that's a
1: very interesting one. I think something that's been very close to my heart is I kind of sum it up as equitable opportunity. And I think that stems from two things. It stems from me having a fairly, you know, decent childhood, uh, upbringing, and I had a fairly comfortable life across India, Indonesia, uh, and Singapore. So I think it stems from a bit of privilege that what, uh, when I was born or when I grew up, I guess the dice rolled out of the right side. And over time, what I've realized is a lot of where I may be or where my colleagues, peers, or friends may be, it's probably because of this access to equitable opportunity, access to privilege. and But that's not the case for most people, at least in Asia. In Asia, there's still a lot of poverty, still access to basic infrastructure. Water, electricity, internet, education, healthcare is still very, very nascent. So the more I think about it, I realize if only more people had access to equitable opportunity, you'd never know what sort of potential and what sort of magic could we see in the world. So that's a bit of a backdrop of you know my lens or my perspective on whether be it healthcare opportunity, be it education, be it access to technology. So now that I've kind of you know got into a stage in my career where I've done different things, I have grown and sold a business. I've spent 20 plus years in this part of the world. Something that's very close to my heart, like I was saying, is I want to deep dive into areas of health tech and ed tech from a perspective of uh, scaling ventures which are doing good and the same time are commercially successful. So that's where my journey in the last two, three years, I've been spending a lot of time with entrepreneurs in the ed tech, in the health tech, in the fintech space, who are of course commercially driven, but at the same time, they are focused on inclusivity, diversity, equity. They are trying to you know do good for the social structure in APAC. Uh, and I'm quite privileged to be working with them as advisors or investors. So yeah, that's my perspective on uh, equitable opportunity and how can we do good, meaningful work, do good whilst striving for commercial success.
0: And I'm just curious too how you saw the, because we've sort of been talking about this with all our guests in different areas of entrepreneurship and healthcare and mental wellness and everything, how the pandemic affected what you were doing two years ago. How did that change in the last two years? And is it morphing into something else now again? Or is it going back to what it was two years ago?
1: Good news is not kind of going back. And I guess that's the beauty of time. I mean, whether we like it or not, nothing ever goes back. I don't believe. And time only moves forward and hence we need to move forward. There is nothing called going back to pre-pandemic life. And I guess that's good because any such event is a catalytic event. And I think it, it's done a couple of things. It, it gave me a lot more time to think about these things. It gave me a lot of opportunity to kind of Uh, read, think deep, connect with people in the space just to get a bit more perspective as to what's the need of the art. Because to be honest, prior to that, my lens was very much around just pure commercial growth, startup, you know, capital, raising capital and growing companies, which is important because you're creating jobs, you're driving change. But there are a few books that kind of transformed my perspective. And I'll, you know, share that with the audience. One is this book called The 100-Year Life, uh, which basically talks about human longevity is increasing. We are looking to live 70, 80, potentially 100 years. 100 years could become an average in 20 years' time. Then, you know, if you're going to live another 20 years on this planet, the planet has to live for you if you have to live on the planet. Uh, you've got to be healthier. You've got to be mentally and physically fitter, You've got to have more financial capital to be able to sustain for 20 more years. So all of these things suddenly changed my perspective, saying, wow, like, no, this is critical. If you're going to live, you want to live healthy, happy, and a meaningful life. And so that gave me a lot of perspective that we've got to think long-term. The other is a very fascinating book, which is called The Tyranny of Meritocracy. And this is fascinating. And I would urge everyone to read this simply because, like I said, this comes from a point of privilege where I've had good education, I've gone to college, I started working for the government, then I did my own startup thing, I'm investing. But what the book really talks about, and it's based uh, obviously the context in uh, the American system, American education, Ivy League, American capitalism, and basically says that meritocracy as we know it, or as we think about it typically, is actually flawed because people who succeed tend to believe you succeeded because of yourself. And the corollary, they start believing in the corollary that people who did succeed, they didn't succeed because they didn't work hard. But his research shows that that's not true because for people who have succeeded, you tend to discount that, hey, it was your parents or it was your society, it was your community that helped you as well. And for people who didn't succeed, maybe they never got access to opportunity, technology, and so many things. And so the more I've been thinking about it, I'm quite convinced that the fundamental system of pure capitalism or pure um, meritocracy as the Western world or as any capitalistic society or democracy would define needs a rethink. Because if you look at the data points, and I think during the pandemic to your question, the gulf between the rich and the poor has only widened. Inequality is at its highest ever. So if capitalism really worked, the one person wouldn't have gotten richer whilst everyone else gotten poor. So going back to your question, yes, we're not going back, we're only moving forward. So this has given me time to introspect, rethink, talk, conceptualize, and it all stems around what can we do to ensure that, especially in emerging markets like China, India, Africa, LATAM, or even within America, within, uh, richer countries in, in Singapore even, how do we ensure that people have exposure and access to basic infrastructure in technology, utilities, healthcare, education, so that it can give them a fairer chance in life?
0: Good. Well, so let's get back to the, the opportunities in the Asian market. So with regards to healthcare industry in the U.S., one strategy for creating health equity has been centered around social determinants of health. So what is your perspective on the strategy with regards to some of the investment opportunities in Asia markets uh, versus other markets?
1: I, I do keep a tab on you know, what's going on in the Western world, obviously. But if I look at the Asian market, I think first and foremost, the solutions have to cater to the local markets. And when I say local, I don't even mean Asia because the reality is there is no one Asia. Indonesia is very different from Philippines to India to China. So I think we've got to have horses for courses. In terms of solutions or investment focus, what am I seeing in this market? So I think the last five years, there's been a wave of telemedicine, right? In Singapore, in India, in China. It's pretty much, thanks to the pandemic, it's accepted. And given the proliferation of mobile devices, I think I haven't visited a general practitioner in, in real life in the last two to three years. Everything happens virtually. I get my medicines, I get my medical certificate, everything happens digitally, which is great. But I think what I'm seeing is the, the other few areas of investment that I'm seeing. One is, of course, the whole vaccine science. It's phenomenal what the Pfizer's, Moderna's, and the BioNTechs have done in that short period of time. And I'm seeing that because Singapore is very good in at attracting some of these large multinational companies to set up research and development bases here. So I believe BioNTech, So biotech is a huge part of Singapore's strategy. So research, development, entrepreneurship in biotechnology, I think that's another to create medicines and create vaccines for potential diseases that we may encounter as a society. That's another huge focus. A third thing that I'm seeing is the whole element of paramedical or nursing care. So there are a couple of companies that I've invested in the region, which basically take care of just ensuring that hospitals or clinics have the right kind of nursing and paramedical support in this part of the world. It sounds simple, but there's always a talent crunch. So there's one particular company called home Edge. They're trying to basically ensure that either families can engage nurses or caregivers at home or hospitals can hire talented, well trained nurses, you know, for their operation. So there's a whole manpower training, manpower or woman power distribution. That's another very interesting element as well and the last thing is i think in terms of what i'm seeing in this part of the world is hospital utilization like in india for example there's a unicorn uh there are, there are a couple of other companies in singapore as well but basically saying the private hospitals have a lot of capacity which may not be put to good use what can we do to ensure that government or public hospitals can actually it, think of it like an airbnb for hospitals say so if someone has extra medical devices or extra medical free operating theater for today and if there's demand at a particular time, can they rent it? Can they utilize it? So these are the broad themes that I'm seeing in this part of the world. Telemedicine, biotechnology, manpower training and deployment, and utilization of medical resources. Uh, On the telemedicine side, I was fortunate to be part of a couple of opportunities. For example, even in the area of uh, pathological testing, I think it's amazing to see in markets like India, China. Like I don't think my parents have have visited a lab to get any of their health checkup done in the last four or five years. And again, it's a phenomenal movement. Someone comes home, takes pretty much all your tests, goes back to the lab, does the processing and your results are up on the cloud. On your mobile device.
0: That's amazing like the concierge service. So let's talk about the future a little bit, okay? So in more recent trends there are two topics of interest, the metaverse and cryptocurrencies. While on one hand there is advances in technology to create more meaningful digital experiences, on the other hand, many parts of the world are still in the developmental phases with regards to capitalizing on emerging technologies. So from a venture capitalist lens focused on healthcare, education and employability, what is your perspective and how can we move to close gaps
1: and become more connected? Yeah, I mean, from my lens, I'm quite excited about the metaverse. In fact, uh, just a few months ago, I had the good opportunity of just immersing myself and trying out an Oculus lens. And I think my realization was beyond the entertainment, the gaming and social networking, I think there are some fantastic use cases for education and healthcare. For example, I was talking to someone yesterday from uh, a very large uh, pharmaceutical company and they were saying they're using the AR, VR headset to train their staff as who are working remotely so that when they come come back to the workforce, they know exactly where the labs are. They know exactly where the models are kept. They know exactly where the syringes are. So it's pretty interesting that they're using immersive technology to train their staff who are working from home across the world. So that's a very simplistic but a very pragmatic use case. I have heard of surgeons who are basically rehearsing their surgeries and operations using HoloLens or using metaverse technology saying, hey, before I actually get to the operating theater, can I do a trial surgery? Because if you're going to be cutting open a human being, you don't have a second chance. But on the metaverse, you could. These are two examples in the healthcare space. On the education, likewise, think of democratizing education, because I've always believed that why should only a few thousand people go to Harvard? Why can't Harvard come to a billion students around the world, someone in Afghanistan, someone in Singapore, right? To me, I genuinely believe, yes, you should make money. Yes, the brand matters. But at the end of the day, education is of no good use if it can't reach or if it can't serve a larger population. So I think with technology, with devices, I hope one fine day a kid in Afghanistan could wear a headset and uh, sit in a Caltech or Harvard.
0: Yeah, I do too, especially with the price of college and I have a college-age kid <laughs> exactly. ready to do that. <laughs> um, all right. So, um, and I don't know if we got too much into the cryptocurrencies in terms of investing.
1: I, I, I must admit, I'm a novice in the crypto. I've just started investing, uh, you know, in Bitcoin and a few other coins just about a year ago. If you ask me, do I completely understand? Answer is no. I'm probably in, in the speculative formal category. But I will say though, What I'm excited about is in the underlying blockchain technology. So crypto is an example of blockchain. Uh, Blockchain, I think, to me, has massive use cases in every industry, including healthcare, because it is, again, about bringing in transparency. It is about distributing resources. It's about collaboration. So I, for example, right, there's a company that I invested in which uses blockchain to give out certification. Now, the certifications could be, you know, in education. They're also working with hospitals to give out certificates to nurses and doctors who are constantly getting upgraded. And emerging markets, there's a huge issue of a forged or fake certificate. But with blockchain, you can't really do that because it's on the blockchain. It's much, much harder to uh, kind of replicate or forge a certificate. So that's, again, a very simplistic use case. Likewise, drug research. Blockchain is allowing them to share their research, share their findings with doctors, around the world, with medical practitioners around the world, because they're trying to solve for two things. They said, look, in the research world, it's competitive. Typically, every scientist wants to keep their research to themselves. But thanks to blockchain technology, they've been able to collaborate, peer review, and there's good value in that. And the other one is, even for medical practitioners, one of the challenges, my wife the doctor, one of the challenges is, how do you ensure that all the R&D that's happening, all the research papers that are being written, how can that information be transmitted to the practitioners on the ground? Because just because they've done an MBBS or a, a master's or an internship five, ten years ago, doesn't mean they're constantly getting updated just the way our mobile phones have a software update. So again, technology and with blockchain-based uh, collaboration, I see a potential for greater collaboration amongst researchers and doctors in the medical uh, fraternity using blockchain. So coming back to crypto, I'm sure crypto as a currency can be used for decentralized investment, but I don't really have a very strong uh, perspective on that. But the underlying technology of blockchain, I think there are already existing use cases.
0: All right. So let's talk about the rising cost of healthcare and and accessibility globally, certainly. When you think about the future of healthcare with regards to quality of treatment and cost, what technologies are most attractive as investments today? And how will this change in the future? Yeah.
1: This is a topic close to my heart because I've done some advisory work and investments in the insure tech space. And, and the companies that I have been working with, their thesis or their motto has been, how do I democratize or how do I break access to preventive healthcare? Because most of healthcare, if you look at it, is what happens when someone gets sick. But I think that you could have technology to let people or encourage people to lead a healthier lifestyle and not get sick. So I think preventive medicine to me is massive. And it's a bit counterintuitive because if you're in the pharma or the healthcare space, if you just take a commercial lens, one could argue that industry would want people to fall sick so that they can keep buying medicine. But there's a counter argument saying, hey, can we have technology that allows people to lead healthier lives? And there comes in two sorts of industries or mini industries or companies that I've been working with. One is food. So we're seeing the rise of the likes of Beyond Meat and Impossible and Vegan Food, obviously which are sustainable, good for the environment and potentially good for health as well. So one is food science, biotech, uh, I think, which is going to be massive. Even in APAC, we see the likes of Oatly, Impossible, Beyond. They're doing some phenomenal work. Singapore in itself has a plan for 2030 to kind of create their own lab-based food. One is for sustainability. The other is for food independence because Singapore is a small country. Uh, It doesn't have its own agriculture. So if they can produce their own food in labs, which is delicious and nothing like it. So there are a couple of companies, for example, one, which does alternative egg protein from plants. I've been working with them uh, as well. It's phenomenal. So food is one. The other is insurtech. So for example, I work with a company called Activo Labs. What they have done is they've said the world has about six and a half billion of these smartphones. Not everyone can afford a Fitbit, but everyone probably has or will have a smartphone at some point in time. Their technology, they've figured a model where just based on the data that the smartphone collects when it's in our hands or pockets or on our desks, they're able to give you a daily, what they call an Activo score, which essentially tells you how healthy you are based on your voice cords, based on your physical movements, based on your eye movements, et cetera. Privacy concerns notwithstanding, it's been phenomenal because they've been working with insurance companies to help them identify healthy of cohorts. So what they're doing is they're working with insurance brands who are basically saying, hey, Think, you know what? Your Activo score is 70. If you can get it up to 90, 100 being the healthiest, you know what? I'll reduce your insurance premiums. So you're kind of working with people, A, telling them how healthy they are or they are not vis-a-vis your cohort. And you're giving them a chance, you're incentivizing and educating them to give them a chance to improve their health score so that hopefully they get better premiums. And that's one smart way of reducing. Premium cost. So, food science in terms of alternate protein, in short tech uh, opportunities. I think these are two ways. So, my interest is really on, like I said, hundred year life. I rather have people live for eighty years in a healthy manner than live for hundred years as a sick person. And that's where preventive medicine, I think, to me, is more important than post.
0: Excellent. So, to wrap up, um, any. Last words for those interested in staying connected to the next wave of innovations within healthcare.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, I wouldn't want to thank Deb because like I told you, my wife's a medical practitioner frontline worker. I'm extremely, uh, you know, thankful to every doctor, nurse, healthcare practitioner for what they have done and have been doing. And they, they are taking the leap of faith. They are taking the risk. So personally, kudos to you for your selflessness. My two pieces of suggestion or advice if it's worth it, is I think the medical practitioner, the way it's designed today, it's A, like I said, very much geared around what happens when people fall sick. I would love to see more doctors and nurses and researchers think about preventative. B, you know, both of uh, the way hospitals or medical science is structured, it's still technology, in my view, has not really cut through or not influenced or disrupted the space as much as it can. And what do I mean by that? You know, it's still very much one is to one, a doctor to a patient. I think there can be scale. So, for example, what I think I would urge the community to think about, how can we use technology uh, to kind of facilitate remote medical practices? Essentially, how can we take their wealth of knowledge and experience and create impact to the larger world? The world is a oyster. So, you know, I tell my doctor friends in Singapore that you're lucky and fortunate to be in Singapore, but how can you create impact to someone in Afghanistan, India, Pakistan, New Zealand, wherever? Because otherwise, you know, we're not creating scalable impact. If Amazon can create scalable impact by delivering a parcel to me within two days in Singapore from Atlanta, why can't healthcare be globally accessible? So that's my submission to healthcare practitioners is think scale, think disruption, think how do you create impact And how do you kind of create impact both, not just in the post-operative world, but also in a preventive perspective. But apart from that, please do take care of yourself, especially your mental health and especially your families, because I can imagine the stress and strain on the Meditate fraternity. That's it from my side. Excellent.
0: Well, how do we stay in touch with you to follow what you're doing?
1: LinkedIn's the easiest. Again, thank God for a scalable global platform like LinkedIn, very much accessible there. Send me a message, we can connect. And if you guys are ever in Singapore, Uh, Just hit me up and look forward to having a meaningful conversation, a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us on the TechLink Health podcast. I'm Justine Reese and we had Prantik Mazumdar here today. Thank you for amazing insight. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. TechLink Health is a healthcare advisory platform for consumers and organizations to stay informed with the latest insights while connecting with healthcare experts for telehealth, e-consults, and consulting services. For more details, visit www.techlink.health.